you all, why don't we just open with a prayer. Father God, we um, pray that as we come together, as we worship you today, as we sing of your praise, as we remember of all the things that Jesus has done for us, um, would your word speak to us today? And would you give us hearts to hear you and to draw near to you and to be built up in you? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Paul the Apostle held up the pride of the Corinthian church like a big balloon, filled to bursting with hot air and self-importance they were, and he stuck a great big pin in their balloon. Paul told the Corinthian church that spiritually they were like little babies. They thought they were wise enough to decide who was better, who they should follow, Paul or Apollos. But Paul tells them that the truth is they can't be making judgments like that. Because Paul and Apollos are both working for God. And ultimately, it's God who works through them. It's God who brings the success. Our passage this week follows on from that passage last week, building on and repeating many of the themes we've already seen. Each week, remember, we're looking at little chunks of Paul's letter. But we need to remember that these chunks are ultimately snapshots, part of Paul's bigger message in his letter to the Corinthian church. One slice of a longer argument. These passages then, they they aren't standalone, they interweave together and they build a bigger argument as Paul unpacks what he thinks and as he tells the Corinthians. In our passage this week, Paul continues this, this bigger argument. In our little slice of Paul's letter, Paul looks at two strands of this unfolding themes, two points, as you were, for our passage today. The first of the points today is, don't boast in individual leaders, because... All things are yours. You see, we don't belong to our leaders. They and everything else belong to us. So don't boast in your leaders because all things are yours. That's point one. Our second point today is about judging church leaders, whether we can, whether we should. Judging church leaders, that's our second point. But Paul starts off in our passage today by coming back to his strand of thought about topsy-turvy thinking. Do you remember that from maybe like a month ago? Well, if you don't, it's okay. Because verses 18 to 20 of our, of our passage today, of chapter 3, are Paul's summary of what he's already said back in chapters 1 and 2. If you think you're wise according to worldly wisdom, you should become a fool so that you become wise. What? Well, the wisdom of the world, Paul says, is foolishness in God's sight. And he's talking here about the topsy-turvy wisdom of the gospel again. He's saying that the wisdom of God, what God thinks is wise, is very different from the wisdom of the world. The gospel says that the first will be last, and the last will be first. The gospel says that in humility is greatness, and in servanthood is freedom. And we see all that displayed, of course, don't we, most fully in Jesus, the Son of God who goes to death on a cross as a servant of everyone. Jesus, who was perfect in every single way, who was spotless, and yet who sacrificed his life for us, who mess up every single day, who sin every single day, who every single day fail to live the way God wants us to. Yet in him, we have life forever. And Paul's come back to this thought about topsy-turvy thinking for a reason. 
It leads him into our first point today. Basically, he wants the Corinthians to stop thinking in ways that the world thinks are wise and start thinking in ways that God thinks are wise. That's gospel thinking. And he wants them to do this specifically, specifically because he wants them to stop boasting in human leaders. That's the springboard for his first point. You see, Paul knows the church is divided into people saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. And so Paul is trying to get them to see that to say I am of Paul or I am of Apollos is kind of just like saying I am of Manchester City or I am of Liverpool or whichever football team you support. It's, it's like saying, you know, I am of Boris, I am of Kia. Paul says this is, in the church, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, this is completely not what God wants. To do this in the church is to completely miss the point of the gospel. You see, God's wisdom is inherently uniting. It brings people together. We saw last week, didn't we, that that church leaders are all fellow laborers in God's field. They're doing the same sort of thing with the same end, following the same leader. They're serving the same master together. And they're not doing it for their own glory, but all for the glory of that master, Jesus. It's the master, Jesus, who died to save the Corinthians, not Paul or Apollos. It's the Holy Spirit that brings faith and life, not Paul or Apollos. They should boast only in the triune God, not in other people. To try and treat these church leaders in the same way that we might treat football or politics or anything else in the world is to completely miss the point. So Paul says, no more boasting about church leaders. Stop it. But Paul also decides to, if this is the angle that Paul has been following now for a few chapters, think of it like a sort of meandering stream that we've kind of been seeing segments of. In fact, don't think like that. I'm just making it up now on the fly. Um, Think on the other side. Paul's bringing in another argument. So we've got this argument that he's been talking about for the last three chapters. And now he's making the same point, don't boast, but he's going to explain it a different way. And I'm going to need your patience here because Paul kind of gets a bit complicated. But here's where Paul is going to. He's not just going to repeat what he said in previous weeks. He's going to build on it, and he's going to take a different argument. So look at verse 21 again with me, if you've got your Bible there. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. The NIV translation puts a little exclamation mark there to emphasize that Paul is really stressing this. He's commanding it. Stop it. Stop boasting in worldly leaders. But in the original, there's a little connecting word here where the exclamation mark is. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. For, for all things are yours. For all things are yours. Hang on. What, what's Paul talking about now? Where's this come from? Look, verse 22. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Oh, okay. He's kind of using all to mean a group of things here, isn't he? He's talking about leaders. Actually, he's saying all leaders are iron. But wait, there's more, isn't there? Or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Oh, wow, okay, that's a pretty wide list. He's just gone from this small thing, and now he's talking about life and death and the present and the future. All things are yours. This feels like a bit of a curveball, doesn't it? He's gone from this pretty parochial problem that the Corinthian church had there in the first century AD. And he's now bringing in all of time, life and death. And he's telling them it all belongs to them. All things are yours. Not to 60 in three verses. 
Now, before you get too excited and start to think that it's your lucky day and, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you're going to get home and find a trillion pounds in your bank account. That, that's not the point Paul is making. Sorry. It means all things belong to all of them as a group. It's a plural thing. All things are yours as a church community. Because they've been saying, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos. But they've got it topsy-turvy. They don't belong to Paul or Apollos. Paul and Apollos belong to all of them. How come? How does that work? Well, verse 23, look at that if you've got it there. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. See, this this is big picture stuff here that Paul's going to. In the Bible, we have this idea that those who trust in Jesus and who are saved by his death, are not just sort of saved from death to life, as awesome and amazing and as powerful as that is, but even more, they are, in a sense, included in Jesus. In John 15, Jesus uses the metaphor of a plant to explain it. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In Colossians 3, verse 3, Paul puts it like this, For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And again and again, Paul calls the church a body. Jesus is the head of the body, but the whole church makes up the rest. And this is why Paul says you can't be boasting in a leader. How silly is that? To say that you belong to one person within the body is saying that, you know, I, a hand, belong to that toe over there. It's absurd. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I, a finger, belong to that ear over there. The point is it all belongs to all of us because we're all in the body. It all belongs to all of us because it all belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the head. Jesus is Lord over the whole of creation. All of time and space are in him and all of those things are ours too because of that. So in him we don't have to fear the future. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the present or the things to come. Everything, everything comes under Jesus' authority and we are in him. So how are you coping with that? Paul's just chucked out some big picture abstract theology right there midway through a conversation, as you do. And he's done it with the primary aim of persuading the Corinthians to actually do something pretty small, pretty concrete, hasn't he? to persuade them that instead of playing off Paul and Apollos against each other, they can be learnt from together because both of them belong to all of them. It's not an either or, it's a both. The Corinthians can and they should learn from every church leader because every church leader is theirs. The same applies to every church, even to us here at Platt today. Now, of course, the direct connection to us today is that Paul says we shouldn't boast in one leader over another And we've seen that in previous weeks, haven't we? But I think the point here goes wider because Paul's underlying big picture argument here goes wider too, doesn't it? He's talking about the whole of the church here. All things are yours, he said. So it means more than simply not just picking one particular church leader. It means where do we act like the Corinthians in deliberately narrowing our horizons? Where do we act like the Corinthians in making ourselves a tribe within that greater body of which Christ is the head, all of which is ours? Where do we act like the Corinthians in refusing to accept some of the things that are ours in Christ? Where do we consciously, unconsciously restrict ourselves to a part of the truth of which we have the whole? 
And that's very abstract, but you say, what does that actually mean in reality, Jack? Give us a concrete example. You know, you're giving us this big picture stuff, but but I want to see what you mean. Well, it might mean that we can learn helpful things about prayer from people who are a bit different from us. Maybe people more or less charismatic than we are. Maybe it means we finally get reading, get around to reading that devotional book on our bookshelf that someone got us that isn't by Tim Keller and we think it's going to be a bit hard. It might mean being willing to, being willing to listen to someone who likes church a bit different than we do and, and we don't really know why and actually we don't want to learn. Maybe it'd be helpful to just sit and chat with that person. It might being, mean being willing uh, to give listen, listen to old hymns or, or new hymns if you like the old ones. Um, and actually sit there and listen to them and hear what they have to say and, and what they tell us about Jesus. There's just a few examples. It might mean all sorts of things. Because in Christ, all things are yours. In the second part of today's passage, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul moves on to his second point, judging church leaders. And he gets to this by weaving through our first point, because ultimately the two are connected. His second point is judging church leaders. Can we judge them? Should we judge them? Well, in verse 1, Paul says that he and Apollos and other ministers of the gospel are to be seen as servants of Christ. But it's a particular type of servant that Paul has in mind here. This isn't just any servant. The word is a steward. And that's important, you see, because a steward was a servant with a particular job. They were employed by a master to oversee something. So think about... An example might be, you know, like a big area of farmland, like the Yorkshire Dales. Probably that's a bit too big. But so pretend you're a guy who owns that. Now, that's far too big for you to look after on your own. And you're probably at that point so rich that you don't want to bother looking after it. So, so what do you do? Well, you um, appoint a steward. Now, in the old days, in the, in the days when Paul was writing, you might be a rich Roman senator or something. And you've been given a big chunk of part of the empire and that's yours. And you can live off the money. But you, you live in Rome, that's a long way away, and you can't see what's going on over there, and you're too lazy to anyway, really. You just want an easy life. So you appoint a steward. Now, the steward is a servant, just like all the other servants, all the other farmers who live on that land. You own all of that land, so they're all your servants. And you're, you, the master, don't want to deal with it, so you appoint a steward. And the steward's job is to look after that land. It might be a house. Think about, you know, Downton Abbey, those great big mansions that people used to live in that are far too, like, impractical and... Uh, expensive to live in today. You think about that mansion, you've got like 20 people in the kitchen, 10 people cleaning, dusting all the time. You've got five people looking after your horses. You've got lots of people working in that house. Now, if, you, if you're if you rich enough to own that house, you don't want to make sure every single person in that house is doing their job properly and make sure they're paid. So you appoint a steward. The steward is the person who is a servant of the master, just like everyone else in that house but who, and this is important, they have an oversight role. They do have authority within that, but they only have authority because the master has given it to them. The steward has authority from the master to make sure that that thing that they have authority over is kept well. They have to prove to their master that they can faithfully do their job to keep the master's trust. And the reason Paul uses this, and this is important, is because it was the master and only the master, only the master, who would decide whether the steward had fulfilled their task or not. Who would decide whether the steward had been faithful. This is the role of the church leader, Paul says. And of course, they aren't entrusted with land or property. They're entrusted with what, in verse 1, Paul calls the mysteries God has revealed. 
When Paul talks about the mysteries of, the, of God, he's talking about the gospel, about his message, the message which he, Paul, brought to the Corinthian church in the first place. And who is he a steward of? Well, we see it in verse 1 again, don't we? It's Christ. And so it's for Christ, his master, to decide if Paul has been faithful to the gospel or not. And this is then what Paul unpacks in verses 3 and 4. That's why we get this remarkable statement. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I can't even and I don't even judge myself. And why in verse 4 he says that even though his conscience is clear as far as he can tell, he doesn't prove anything because it's the Lord who judges me. Paul is a steward whose master is Jesus. And Paul says that faithfulness to Jesus and to Jesus' message is what must ultimately be judged in church leadership. And he says only Jesus can judge that. They can't do it. He himself can't even do it. Only Jesus can judge whether he's been faithful. Verse 5 tells us when this verdict will come. Jesus will decide that great and weighty matter only at the time of his return, what Paul here calls the appointed time. On that day, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose all the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise or otherwise from God. So how foolish, how foolish of the Corinthians, Paul is suggesting, to think that they can decide between Paul and Apollos. But you know, does this passage make you a little bit uncomfortable? Because, you know, when I first read this, I have to admit, it made me a little bit uncomfortable. Because I think in the last few years in particular, a light has actually been shone on dark places in the church, hasn't it? And the wickedness of some church leaders has been brought to light. So is this passage saying that maybe that actually shouldn't happen until Christ returns? Is it saying that we're supposed to let these things remain hidden? Well, we're in a cultural moment where a passage like this might seem to raise all sorts of red flags. It seems to be arguing against everything we've been saying for the last few years as we've tried to come to terms with some of these really horrible things. Could this section of 1 Corinthians be used to argue that those who have authority in the church can only be held accountable by God? That they're untouchable until Christ returns? Well, I don't think it does. I hope that's helpful. I don't think that that's what this passage teaches. Paul here isn't talking about a church leader who who through their actions or their beliefs so strongly and seriously goes against the message of the gospel. Really, he's talking here about people like him, like Paul and Apollos, the people who are fellow laborers in the field, the people he described last week who are serving God to God's glory together. In fact, in other passages, he talks about how someone who has done those bad things, who isn't following the gospel, who, if push comes to shove, can be cast out if necessary. An abusive church leader, as an example, can find no justification whatsoever here in this passage. In fact, verse 5 applies to them only insofar as they will certainly, certainly be judged by Christ when he brings to light what is hidden in darkness and exposes the motives of everyone's hearts. And as a steward of the master, they should be terrified of that. They should tremble before the thought of when their master returns and sees what they have done in his harvest field. But what else does it mean? What else does it mean for us, this passage? Having given you that proviso, which I hope is helpful, what does this passage mean? 
Well, it also means that maybe we shouldn't be overly hasty to judge our church leaders. Maybe sometimes we expect too much of them. We expect them to be Jesus for us. And we need to remember that actually they are only stewards. They aren't the master. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our Lord. Not Paul. Not Apollos. All leaders have their views that we disagree with, don't they? Their ways of doing things that annoy us. It isn't for us to judge them for that. Sometimes we might need to cut them a little bit of slack. Other times, our problem might be the opposite. We might need to stop idolizing our leaders. We might need to stop thinking that we can find our salvation in them, that we can get everything we need from them. They're only a steward. Paul, our Paul, the vicar Paul, said himself a few weeks ago that if he hasn't let you down yet, he will. And he's sorry for that. But he'd be the first to admit he's not perfect. And I'm glad of that, because as his boss, I can't say he's not perfect. Um, I can't say it for him. So yes, maybe we need to cut them a bit of slack. Maybe we need to stop idolizing them. But finally, one last thing to say on this. What does it mean for a church leader to be a steward? Well, it means no church belongs to its minister. It belongs to Jesus. The minister, the vicar, the pastor, whatever you want to call them, is not a master or lord, and they cannot and should not treat church members in such a way. Their authority is only delegated. Again, we see the topsy-turvy world of the gospel at work, don't we? A church is not a business. A minister does not own a church. A church leader is only a leader insofar as they are a steward. And they're called to love and serve and protect the church community just as their master calls them to, to be like Jesus. Because isn't it good news that the person who leads our church isn't a person, isn't a steward, it's Jesus. It's the Son of God. Jesus himself who cares for and loves and protects the church. Jesus who came out of heaven and who called us out of darkness and who sacrificed himself for us. The steward is called by the master to imitate the master. And if they don't, then Jesus will hold them to account. As verse 5 says, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. So then, all things are yours, even stewards. Use them well. Use them wisely. And remember, they aren't perfect. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that in Jesus we have this wonderful big picture that all things are ours, that we have no need to fear life or death or anything else in all creation because all things in creation are under him, our saviour. Please help us to um, be wise as we uh, live as a church. Help us not to, um, to live as the world lives, to follow the wisdom of the world, but to live in church following your wisdom, to see that the first are last and the last are first that leaders are only stewards, and help us all to be more and more like Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.